Community Church Atridge as the youth and young adults pastor. And this morning, we're going to be continuing on our Kingdom Culture Series. I'm going to be talking about the kingdom of our hearts. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being with us in this moment. Lord, we just pause to acknowledge your presence. We just ask, as we learn together and hear from your word this morning, that, Lord, all of the scattered parts of our brains and our lives would just be at peace, and we would hear your voice. And Holy Spirit, they would teach us and shape us this morning. So we pray this in your name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever taken a personality test. You know, one of those sets of like 25 questions that tell you all about who you are or what you're like or how you interact with people. You know, there's the Myers-Briggs or there's the color test or the Enneagram. Maybe you've taken like the BuzzFeed, like which friend's character test are you? I'm not sure if you've ever taken one of those things, but I for a long time felt so averse to those things. Because I didn't like the idea that someone could just put me in a little box. That there could only be six possible or 16 possible personalities that I could be a part of. And that they could tell me the good, bad, and the ugly of who I was or what my heart looked like. And maybe you've had a similar experience. Or maybe you're on the other side of that. You feel like it's so hard for you to identify what's going on inside you that you want someone else externally to help you understand what's going on the inside so that you can make sense of yourself. I know that at the core of us, we want to be people who are really known. We want people to know our heart. We want people to see our actions through the lens of knowing who we really are and what we really care about. That we want them to see us for the things inside of our heart. I believe that Jesus invites us into a similar life. That he wants us to be people who have his kingdom in our heart. And today we're going to look at a passage that really invites us into asking what does it look like to have the kingdom of God within us. So this passage is the beginning of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5, and it has two characteristics that are really key to pay attention to. First of all, it's the longest sermon that Jesus ever gave. So likely it was given to people over many days. And it's also the sermon that he gave to the largest group of people, thousands of people spread out on the hillside of Capernaum. Hence the name Sermon on the Mount. I love to imagine the systems that it took for this teaching to go on. You know, if, if Jesus could only speak so loud, was there like someone who kind of was at the edge of where his voice could go that would carry it further? Or was there times to stop and to process of people to talk in their, their household or their community groups? Regardless of how it was orchestrated, Jesus had this opportunity to teach the crowds who were drawn to him about who he was and what his kingdom looked like. Now in Matthew, it often talks about the people Jesus interacted with, and there's three categories that we see uh, predominantly. There's Jesus interacting with his disciples, his committed followers, the, the 12 that were closest to him. Then there were the religious leaders, the people who were already in places of power in the religious system that was functioning in that time. And then the crowds. And the crowds are kind of this ambiguous word of embodying anyone who was around. They could be people who was drawn to Jesus by curiosity or skepticism. They could have been critics or those who were just craving to understand who this man was. Regardless, all were desiring to see a greater glimpse into Jesus and what he had to say and what he was telling them about the kingdom of God. 
So before he embarks on this teaching of epic proportion, he pauses to take a moment with those who are surrounding him. Before he goes out to the masses, he stops and turns to his 12 disciples and he says, before I tell you the things that you're going to do in the kingdom, I want to take a moment to focus on who you're supposed to be. He kind of gives them this picture of where our hearts are meant to align, the characteristics of God and his kingdom that we are supposed to embody and the benefits that come from us. So we call this characteristic list the Beatitudes. And it happens at the beginning of Mark, or Matthew chapter 5. So let's read it together. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. So here's this profile that Jesus gives his closest followers. He says, these are the characteristics with, of someone with a kingdom heart. Jesus speaks to a culture that they would have been so centered around in the time. They would have been exposed to a religious culture where it was all about doing the right thing in God's eyes and, and receiving the rewards of that. And Jesus cuts through that exterior and goes right to the inside. And he says, no, I want what matters to be the matters of the heart. He confronts the values that would have been so ingrained in each other from the culture around them and says, now you have a new culture, new values, a new identity to operate from. He doesn't just list things that are like entrance requirements to the kingdom or ethical demands for personal behavior but instead he instates on them an identity, saying you're invited to know that you're blessed by God and that blessing produces a character that is, that is rooted in the kingdom of God. He outlines a heart posture to become kingdom people. The contrast is quite clear. Being a kingdom person doesn't mean being powerful or having a lot of authority. It doesn't mean having um, a lot of like land or possessions, but instead it actually means taking a position of powerlessness, of humility, emptying ourselves of the power we can have and, and choosing humility so we see the kingdom come. Each of these statements in the Beatitudes is kind of a two-clause poetic statement. First, we see a declaration of blessing and a statement of identity. Jesus saying, this is who you are as kingdom people. And then second, we see an outcome or a benefit of how they'll experience that blessing, not by the, the world standards, but by the standards of the kingdom of heaven come to earth. So let's walk through each of these beatitudes and look at them a little more closely. The first one says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You may also know this as blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Now, this word poor is often a word that we look at with a negative connotation. Someone who has experienced significant loss or even materially have gone bankrupt. Someone who's to be pitied. So often when we think of being poor in spirit, we can feel like it has a negative connotation, almost like it's someone who's asking for pity in a situation where they should be able to just help themselves. But being poor in spirit is not about someone who's pitying themselves, but instead recognizes that they cannot produce any spiritual or religious self-help before God, but instead that we are, are spiritually bankrupt, that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, that we know that God just gives it to us freely and only God can truly fill and fulfill and redeem our lives. Being poor in spirit means our striving gains us nothing in God's eyes. We are simply free to receive the blessing and the invitation to his kingdom. This beatitude undercuts what would have been a really predominant worldview at the time, that material possessions would have been a sign of God's approval for your life or your prosperity. And it also challenges this, the spiritual sufficiency that the religious leaders of the time would have boasted in, that they did all the right things so they have God's favor. And Jesus says, no way. When we come broken and needing before him, he fills us. The next beatitude says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. To mourn is to grieve, to experience deep sorrow when we experience a loss that's unrecoverable. It's losing anything that's valuable to us and acknowledging the pain and awareness of the loss at hand. Our North American culture is not very good at mourning. Pain slows us down or makes us less efficient or makes us weak. Mourning is inconvenient, especially mourning alongside someone else who is mourning. We often compartmentalize it and just say that we push through because mourning takes time and it takes energy and it takes emotion. But Jesus says there's beauty in the morning and that his presence is there because it's in the depth of pain that we're also met with the abundance of God's deep comfort. We know him more intimately. We know each other more intimately. And our hearts can feel the kingdom. The next one says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. You may also know it as blessed are the meek. These words, humble and meek, they also used to have a negative connotation to me. You know, the word meek to me used to be like mousy or, or quiet, someone who is just a pushover. But I recently heard meekness defined as quiet strength and generous submissiveness. And hum humility being to think of each other in our right standing. Meekness and humility are not weakness, but instead they contrast the aggressive, dominant attitude which we're often trained to adapt to survive or to flourish or to prosper. Meekness does not mean that one cannot stand up for what is right or use their voice to challenge oppressive systems and structures. Instead, it's the humility and gentleness that's meant to be the backdrop for those who take on the strongest causes. And that humility will bring change and movement through the whole earth. It's the quiet strength of the nonviolent protests led by Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement or the peaceful humility of Tristan DeRocher's hunger strike to call on the government to attend to the significant needs for suicide prevention in our indigenous communities here in Saskatchewan. This is meekness 
and humility that can change the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for justice, for they will be satisfied. Hunger and thirsting for justice or righteousness means that in our hunger and thirst, we are desperate. We'll stop at nothing to fill the need because when we're hungry and we're thirsty, we know that we, we're desperately longing for something that we need for survival. And justice or righteousness are right-standing relationships with both God and those around us. This beatitude tells us that we're meant to have a desperation for ourselves and others to experience the freedom that comes from relationship with God, but also the freedom that comes from reparations that are made with those who have experienced injustice in relationship. And in so doing, we experience fulfillment, not because we personally have gained, but because all have gained. Collective humanity has gained. It's a satisfaction that's not rooted in our own benefit, but ev everyone's desperation and freedom. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a central theme in scripture. It means not getting what one deserves, a pardon from an unfavorable outcome. Mercy, when applied to our life with Jesus, is forgiveness for those of us who are guilty or healing for those who don't necessarily deserve it. Generosity towards the hurting or the needy, regardless of how we find ourselves in those circumstances. Mercy is the goodness and grace of God poured out to all his people all over the world. This beatitude shows a cycle of mercy in motion. Those who receive mercy then demonstrate mercy. And in demonstrating mercy, are reminded of our own great need for mercy and are privileged to receive it. And the cycle continues. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Though all of the Beatitudes address the attitudes of the heart, this one really calls it out. Jesus speaks right to the core of our being, the governing center of our thoughts and our, our emotions and our soul, the heart. Purity or cleanliness would have been a theme that the religious people of Jesus' day understood. They would have known very well the external rituals they had to do to make themselves clean to come before God. They had to do actions on the outside that produced purity on the inside to be in relationship with God. But Jesus flips that. He says, no. First, you must have a willing heart that's willing to align your heart with God's purity allows his spirit to come into your life to change and mold and shape you, his love and his goodness and his kindness to affect you, and then our hearts are changed. And as our hearts change, our actions flow out of that. A heart that is soft towards God and his people is a heart that will see God in all around them at all times. A soft heart to God is a heart that sees God's image in the face of all people, the oppressor, or the greedy, or the poor, the marginalized, the addicted, the self-righteous, or the different. A heart that is soft towards God and his people is a heart that will see God in and around them at all times. God blesses those who work for peace, or blessed are the peacemakers. This word peace in scripture is often the Hebrew word shalom, which is a bigger, fuller picture of what peace is. It means peace or harmony, a working together, a wholeness, completeness, 
of prosperity and welfare and a tranquility in knowing that all things are connected in harmony. It does not mean working for a peace that is passive or is based in inaction, but peacemaking or working for peace is an, an active process. It means engaging in hard conversations, not always asserting our viewpoint onto others. It means listening and hoping and learning and changing and working through conflict. It means confronting with a heart that is gentle and not combative and being willing to sit alongside others who are different from us, finding commonness and choosing acts that work towards shalom. It is, this, it is in this way that we'll be children who look like God our parent, who takes broken things and makes them whole again. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is not a command to go and seek persecution. It's not Jesus saying, go and be persecuted, and therefore you'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Instead, it's spoken as a word of comfort for those who have stood for what is right and been persecuted because of it. This beatitude is often read as worldly persecution, things from outside of those who believe in Jesus being being placed upon people who do believe in Jesus. But we have to expand our view of that because Jesus would have known that the religiosity or the legalism, the self-righteousness, the rule following of many of the religious leaders would have actually prevented Jesus' followers from doing the things that he believed would bring right and restored relationship with others in exchange for just looking right or looking like you're doing the right thing. Sometimes persecution actually comes from within us. Regardless, he says that we are people who are blessed. And therefore, we know that as we work to see the kingdom of heaven come here on earth, persecution may come, but God will meet us in it. These are the Beatitudes. This is a character list of God's character shown to us that we are invited to participate in. I think to embrace the Beatitudes, we have to consider three things. First, we must realize that kingdom culture starts in the heart. This list is not about what we can do or how we can act. Although that comes later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually begins to address the actions that overflow of the heart. Jesus starts with the foundation of addressing who we are on the inside. You know, this list doesn't say blessed are the pastors or the worship leaders or the missionaries or the preachers. Blessed are the council members or the junior high leaders or those who run Alpha or volunteer in soup kitchens or donate to all the causes. Those are all good things. <laughs> and they're in line with the parts of the Sermon on the Mount that will come next. But Jesus starts here at who we're meant to be. He first tells us that the blessing we receive for being kingdom people is the invitation to let the Holy Spirit come and change and reshape our heart. We must love with his love and feel with his heart and out of our heart, our actions will flow. The second thing that we must do to embrace the Beatitudes is recognize that being blessed is a state of being that God speaks over us. And it's a state of experiencing hope and joy and freedom, which is independent of our circumstance. And it results in seeing God's kingdom come into fruition. Being blessed is a state of being that doesn't have to do with our circumstance or our outcome. It's not our, our privilege or our oppression. It's the, the word that God gives to us of who we are. It's not the blessing that comes from 
doing the right thing first, being pure in heart first or working for peace first. It says that that's who God speaks out that we start as, blessed children of God. And when we know that identity out of that state, we then work for peace or purity of heart or hunger and thirst for justice. It is a state of knowing that our hope and our joy and our freedom comes first from God and keeping our hearts soft to us longing for God's kingdom to come and heaven to break into earth and knowing our blessing is not an outcome of obedience or striving, but yet we can respond to it. Last, we can embrace these beatitudes um, when we align, when we realize that to align our character with Jesus's, we must assess our view of power. These beatitudes have turned the system and structure of hierarchy in the culture upside down. We often call it the upside down kingdom because Jesus comes to change the way that they look at a savior or a messiah. You know, there are always power dynamics at play in any situation that we're in, workspaces, families, gender, race, politics. Our world functions and often elevates us to rise to power by reducing the power of others seems that greatness comes when we're more powerful. But Jesus comes to invert those power structures. And he says when we become less, he and his kingdom actually become more. You know, often I read scripture and I have to remind myself of the lenses of power that I bring to the text. And that I, I bring my own experiences as a woman or a mother or a pastor or even my, my own whiteness to the table when I read and I have to stop to remind myself that God's word is himself revealing his character to all people. And so I ask myself, how would young parents living in poverty read these words? Or how would a girl trapped in human trafficking hear this? How would someone struggling with mental health receive these beatitudes? Or those living in famine or drought or starvation? How would Jesus' character and call hit differently to them? In prepping for this teaching, I came across a beautiful, beautiful visual representation of looking at this passage through a different lens of power. Laura James is a black artist from New York who loves the style of Ethiopian Christian art. And in her art piece, black, called Black is Blessed, she depicts the Beatitudes by merging that art form with scenes from the transatlantic slave trade of the 18th century in the American South. She partners a posture of humility, persecution, mourning, all of the postures of the Beatitudes with the experience of those who are, who are enslaved. Those who God calls blessed are those who are being whipped and sold and exploited. It's a hard and beautiful image to look at. And in the middle of this image, we see Christ, who's depicted as an African, which places him in solidarity with the slaves in each scene. It displays his unity with them in their suffering and in their blessedness. While still being fully God, he embraces being fully human alongside them. And so they can find their story in his story. No matter, no matter how their worth or their value is dictated, Jesus calls them blessed and stands with them. He calls them children of God. And as they embrace that identity, they also can look at their oppressors and know that Jesus also calls them children of God and hold on to hope for the inbreaking of the kingdom. Jesus came to invert our power structures 
He redirects the expectation of a powerful, conquering Savior to one that is born in finite weakness of flesh, to a marginalized family. He takes his divine nature of being God and puts it in human form, allowing it to be contained by the limitations of the human experience. And he preaches and lives a life of self-sacrifice and self-emptying. These characteristics are one that emulate the posture that Jesus took when he came to earth, a posture of emptying himself of the human power he could have had and submitting himself to others around him. We're reminded of this as we read Philippians 2, 5-8. to You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus stood in solidarity with his people by taking on the human experience in fullness, even unto an unjust death. We'll only be able to embrace the kingdom heart if we can assess the power positions we sit in with honesty and submit them to Jesus' ways. The Beatitudes are a beautiful picture of the character of Jesus that we are now invited to be as followers of him, as blessed children of God with kingdom hearts that overflow in kingdom ways. As we close, I want to leave you with two questions, and I invite you to share your responses in the chat or with one another in your household as you, as you process. Which Beatitude is Jesus drawing you personally to embody in your life right now? And which beatitude or which characteristic of God do you feel like the world needs the church to embody, to experience Jesus' love in these moments right now? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are good. We thank you that you uh, are the fullness of God in human form. We thank you that you came to live a life where you emptied yourself of the power structures that you could embrace so that we could experience you in relationship and in fullness. Lord, we thank you for these words, these instructions, these, um, this character profile of who we're meant to be as kingdom people. And God, I pray for our hearts, that as we hear these words, Lord, that our hearts would align with your heart and in so doing that we would see the kingdom come. God, teach us to be people who make peace, who hunger and thirst for justice, who are poor in spirit, who are humble and meek, who long to see your face. God, I pray that you would show us how these characteristics need to break into our lives right now, but how we as the church collectively would embrace these characteristics so the world around us would see and know you. Holy Spirit, would you teach us how to live in these ways? So we pray these things in your name. Amen.